guys, welcome to episode 23 of the Mysterious Benedict Society Read Aloud Podcast Book 2. Today we'll be reading chapter 23, but first a recap of chapter 22. Milligan came to the children's rescue with the salamander. Yay! Sadly, though, the children had to leave him behind to fight the ten men while they ran away in the salamander. They were supposed to go back to the Bay Forest to meet friends, as Milligan told them, but instead Rennie decided they needed to save Mr. Benedict, so they went to the cave in the mountains. And so when we left off was the children were about to see Mr. Curtin again, and Milligan was not the last man standing after a big fight with the Tin Men. Uh, so that's the end of the summary. It's a pretty short summary, so let's get started. Chapter 23, The Cave at the Top of the Mountain At the exact moment the terrible battle with the Tin Men was beginning in the abandoned village, Rennie and the other children stood outside the entrance of the mountain top cave. The air emanating from within was damp and strangely warm, and had a faintly sulfurous odor. Inside, at the end of the narrow tunnel-like passage, the cave opened to a much larger space, a cavern in which stasialites and stagmalites bristled from above and below. The children could see everything quite well, for the cavern was illuminated by a series of flooding erected lights on metal stands. Nothing moved. No voices sounded. But the children had seen the flickering shadows. They knew someone was down in there. Rennie recalled how the island, when seen from a height, had resembled a monstrous beast. Now they were walking right into the mouth. At the end of the passage, where the cavern opened up, the children stopped so studied their eerie surroundings. The stagmalites lights here rose out of the ground every dozen or so steps. The stasialites, even more numerous, crowded the cavern ceiling and hung so low that an adult could have reached up and touched the pointed tips. Everything from floor to ceiling appeared slimy and gray. Everything glistened in the bright floodlights. And the soft buzzing of those lights was the only sound that the children could hear, until they heard a man cough. They swiveled their eyes toward one another, hearts hammering. The cough had been simple and short, a normal-sounding cough, but had come from close by. Signaling the others to stay put, Kate crept several steps further. She paused. Rennie saw her eyes widen. Holding a finger to her lips, she beckoned them to join her. The children moved forward on tiptoe. There, in a sort of clearing among the stasiolamites, was Mr. Benedict. He sat several paces away from them, with his back against the only stagolamite in the clearing. His head was down, his eyes were closed, and his hands were behind him in what looked to be a very uncomfortable position. A metal loop had been driven into the stagmalite beside him. Rennie guessed at this loop that the number two had been handcuffed, and that Mr. Benedict was probably cuffed to one just like it. That would explain why his hands were behind him at such an awkward angle. Seeing Mr. Benedict made Rennie's heart swell. There was that familiar head of white hair and that familiar green plaid suit, both rumpled as ever. But his burst of happiness instantly gave way to concern, for who knew what sort of condition Mr. Benedict was in? Despite the surge of emotions they felt at the sight of Mr. Benedict, the children kept their composure. Silently, with all their senses on alert, they glanced around for a sign of Mr. Curtin. Not far from Mr. Curtin stood a narrow work table covered with equipment, a microscope, several bars and stoppered bottles, and various oddments and tools. And beneath it was a stack of perhaps fifty black metal containers that resembled shoe boxes. Whether all this belonged to Mr. Benedict or Mr. Curtin was impossible to tell. Just as it was impossible to tell if there was a key on the table, a key that might release Mr. Benedict. Rennie strained his eyes looking for one, but he was too far away, and it seemed too risky to go over there right now. Someone had been moving around in this cavern, almost certainly Mr. Curtin, and the children had yet to stop him. They mustn't let themselves get sneaked up on. Rennie cast a nervous glance toward the passage behind them, then began to study the cavern floor, searching for human-shaped shadows. 
Was Mr. Curtin hiding behind a staglamite, ready to burst out at the right moment? Kate tugged his arm and pointed. Far off to the left was an opening in the cavern wall, beyond which there appeared to be a separate chamber, equally well lit. It, too, was thick with staglamites and stachyolites, and at first glance that seemed part of the cavern in which they stood. Rennie felt a rush of hope. If Mr. Curtin was in that other chamber, they might be able to free Mr. Benedict without ever encountering his wicked brother. "'What do you think?' Kate whispered to Rennie. It was a soft whisper, but even so, Mr. Benedict's eyes sprang open. The effect of disconcerting. No matter what he was, their friend, and they were here to rescue him. And the children, startled, almost cried out. "'You're here?' Mr. Benedict whispered, his expression incredulous. "'But how?' He cut himself off and whispered urgently. "'Never mind. Listen to me, children. There's little time. You must destroy the duck's work. You can't let the Throdger discover its whereabouts.' "'But we have no idea where it is,' Kate whispered. "'You'll have to show us.' Mr. Benedict frowned. "'You don't know? But I thought—' "'Never mind. It's all right. Just wait. Hold still a moment. Be quiet now. There he goes.' The children, frozen in their spots, swiveled their eyes around. A moment beyond the opening of the cavern wall caught their attention— and then they glimpsed what appeared to be a human head and torso floating past the other chamber. A prickling sensation traveled up everyone's spine. Constance gave a muffled whimper. The ghostly sight would have been frightening, even if they hadn't known what it actually was. But they did know. There had been no mistaking it. Mr. Curtin in his wheelchair. They'd seen that long, lumpy nose and shock of white hair, and the gliding motion was undeniable that of something rolling across the ground. Yes, they had all seen it, and yet, strangely, none of them had heard it. Rennie thought this must be a trick of acoustics, some bizarre effect particular to the cavern. Regardless, Mr. Benedict had somehow sensed the wheelchair passing by, and he seemed to sense it too. When it was safe to speak again, he nodded at the children. It's all right, he whispered, but it'll come back any moment. You must hurry. Rennie's arms were covered in goosebumps. What shall we do? Untie my hands, Mr. Benedict said. Hurry now, and we'll escape together. Rennie hesitated. Something seemed amiss. But in the urgency of the moment, he couldn't immediately identify it. Kate, though, had already taken out her army knife, cutting through a rope, with obvious faster than tying it, and she began hurrying toward Mr. Benedict just as Constance yanked on Rennie's arm. Rennie looked down, realized that she was trying to speak, but had too terrified to make a sound. Her eyes were huge. She was frantically shaking her head. With a flash of horror, Rennie understood the reason for his misgivings. Mr. Benedict would never have asked him to untie him, not when lingering here so clearly jeopardized their safety. No, Mr. Benedict would have told them to run. Rennie dashed after Kate, waving his arms, not daring to cry out. For fear of a tin man lurking in the other chamber, he whispered, Kate, stop, stop. Kate heard him and looked back, which was exactly the worst thing she could have done. She had already drawn too close to Mr. Curtin, for it would have been none other than Mr. Curtin leaping to his feet with such a look of malevolent triumph. And before she understood what was happening, the wicked man had seized her. Rennie charged in at full tilt, but no sooner had Mr. Curtin grabbed Kate than he let her go, and as Kate slumped to the floor with a stunned expression, Rennie noticed the shiny silver gloves on Mr. Curtin's hands, one of which shot forward and took him by the arm. Instantly, he felt as if a fireworks display had been launched inside him. His body seemed composed of a million white-hot sparks. It was astonishingly painful, and Rennie's relief was intense when the fireworks faded, leaving what appeared to be a clear black sky. Or no, not sky... Rennie opened his eyes and saw Mr. Curtin's blurry, smiling face floating above him. He heard Sticky's voice as if from a great distance, telling Constance to run. Then he felt something cold, hard, and metallic tightening around his wrist. Not again, Rennie mumbled, still dazed. Oh, yes, said Mr. Curtin, again. 
The children were handcuffed to one another in order of their capture. Kate was cuffed to one of the metal loops in the staglamite. Mr. Gurren had been sure to deal with her first. And Rennie was cuffed to Kate. Next came Sticky, who, despite having seen what those silver gloves had done to his friends, had charged at Mr. Curtin in an attempt to save Constance. "'Run, Constance!' he yelled. "'Run and don't look back!' Moments later, Sticky was on the ground, shocked senseless, and when he came around again, he was handcuffed to Rennie. Together they watched bleakly as Constance was brought back from the cavern entrance, where S. Cupidelian had been waiting. She was sniffling and crying and had gone perfectly limp, and so S. Q. was compelled to carry her. There, there, Constance, as Q was saying, genuinely concerned tone. Don't be upset. This is all just a misunderstanding. I mean, you've just misunderstood. I mean, you've been naughty. Do you understand? That's enough, SQ, said Mr. Kern, removing his silver gloves and slipping them inside his suit coat. Just cover to Mr. Washington there and say no more. It was odd for the children to see the former executive in Revelgore clothes. Gone were the spiffy tumic and shash. But in all the other respects, he seemed the same. He was tall and gangly, his feet were enormous, and he appeared to be acting against his kind-hearted instincts out of some dim-witted loyalty, Mr. Curtin. With the mechanical, efficient movements of one who has performed the same task countless times, S.Q. cuffed Constance's wrist tightly to Sickie's. Constance winced as the metal pinched her skin, and S.Q. winced in sympathetic response. But he remembered Mr. Curtin's order and said no more. Mr. Kern regarded the captive children as if contemplating a magnificent piece of art. His cheerful expression had an unsettling effect, for it made him seem more like Mr. Benedict than himself. "'Thank you all so much for coming,' he said. "'I really could not have asked for a better gift.' "'It was the least we could do,' said Kate. She was quite scared, but she'd rather die than show her fear to the loathsome man who had just shocked the daylights out of her. He had also taken away her army knife, and with it her hopes of prying out the metal loop.' Mr. Kern clapped his hands. Such bravado. Of course, I expected no less from you children. And, as I hope you now realize, I did expect you. Many of my former executives hold government posts, you see. Some of them quite close to Benedict. When you children went off on your own, I was informed at once. My informants were baffled by your disappearance, but your intentions were no great mystery to me. The only question was whether you would succeed in finding your beloved Benedict. Oh, how I hoped you would. "'Where is Mr. Benedict?' Rennie demanded. "'Or are you such a coward that—' "'Renard, for shame!' Mr. Curtin wagged his finger disapprovingly. "'Do you really think I'm unprepared for your tactics this time? "'Last time, you recall, you betrayed me, "'which is the only reason you caught me off guard. "'This time I know you were a convening and deceitful little wretch that you are. "'You won't fool me into getting angry, Renard. "'I won't be disturbed into falling asleep. Ah, contraire!' "'What?' said Constance, who was with some effort had stopped crying. She glanced at Mr. Curtin. "'What do you want?' "'What do you mean, what do I want?' asked Mr. Curtin, who seemed confused by her question. Constance scowled. "'You said, au contraire, so what? What is it?' Mr. Curtin burst into his too familiar laughter, which sounded like nothing so much as a wounded screech owl. "'It's just as S.Q. said, Miss Contraire. You misunderstand.' He shook his head in mock sympathy. "'Never mind, my dear. The point is I am perfectly undisturbed, and I shall remain so. "'Oh, yes, I shall remain in control of my faculties, which means you shall remain in my power.' "'He tapped his fingertips together. "'However, I do grow fatigued. I believe I shall fetch a chair.' "'With a mysterious expectant smile, Mr. Curtin put his hands behind him and stared at their attention, "'as if waiting for something. "'Before the children had time to wonder what they was, "'they witnessed one of the most disturbing things they had ever seen.' Mr. Curtin's wheelchair appeared without a sound. 
It shot out of the other chamber like a rocket, speeding around the staglinites toward its owner. But its wheels made absolutely no sound on the cave floor, and its motor and gears were quiet, even somehow more than quiet. The effect was like watching a silent film, except that this was real life. The only noise the children had heard was the jingle of their handcuffs, for they were all shuddering. The wheelchair was some kind of rolling nightmare, and strapped into its seat was the real Mr. Benedict. His hands were cuffed to the armrests, his head lolled forward on his neck, and his spectacles were in danger of falling from his nose. He appeared to be fast asleep. "'As you see, I've designed an excellent remote control,' said Mr. Curtin, showing them a tiny control box he'd been hiding behind his back. "'SQ, put him with the others. Be careful now. I'm convinced he sometimes only pretends to be asleep.' SQ removed Mr. Benedict from the wheelchair, propped him gently against the stack limite, and handcuffed one of his wrists to the other metal loop. As SQ worked, Mr. Curtin was taking his accustomed place in the wheelchair, which appeared to be his old one. A complicated machine with multiple knobs, buttons, and pedals, but which obviously had undergone certain alarming modifications. "'I imagine you worked himself into a sleeping fit trying to warn you,' Mr. Curtin said in an amused tone. "'He's been in a sore, sorry state of distress ever since Martina reported you on the island.' and his distress was only increased when SQ spotted you coming up the mountain, and I arranged to take advantage of your foolishness. Oh, he protested at the top of his lungs, or I shall say he appeared to. I had activated my new device by then, so his annoying cries were unheard. Noise cancellation, murmured Sticky in surprise, but no one's ever achieved it on such a scale. He fell silent, not mean to have meant to speak up in the first place. Mr. Kern had overheard him, though, and he raised his eyebrows. I see you've kept up with your reading, George. Yes, I've installed a brand new device, one of my own inventions, and thus vastly superior to anything else of its kind. That nullifies all sound in its immediate vicinity. I'm well versed in the multiple manu- I'm well versed in the manipulation of invisible waveforms, as you know. Indeed, compared to my whisper, this project was no more challenging than Mr. Curtin trailed off with a chuckle. But I digress. The point is, you couldn't hear Benedict shouting, and I've had no doubt he'll be upset himself to sleep. How come we can hear you talking, Constance said. It, wouldn't be n- it would be nice if we couldn't. Mr. Curtin twitched, which was the first sign of annoyance he had shown. I deactivated the device, Constance, with a push of a button. If you were more attentive, you would know that. I'm attentive enough, as you see your nasty as ever, Constance retorted, her long-anticipated reunion with Mr. Benedict, occurring under such unsetting circumstances, had produced her in a very agitating mix of relief, concern, and fear. Emotions she naturally expressed with angry defiance. In fact, she was about to deliver an insulting rhyme when Mr. Curtin silenced her with a threatening look. S.Q., Mr. Curtin said, be a good fellow, by which I mean not such a blundering fool, and take a few steps away from Miss Weatherall. I dislike the way she's eyeing the key in your hand. Having locked Mr. Benedict near the children, S.Q. lingered unthinkingly close by. At Mr. Kern's warning, he shoved the key deep inside his pocket and backed away from Kate with a look of disbelief. At the Institute, he'd been fond of the children, and despite all that had happened, S.Q. found that he was comfortable with them, and far too trusting. He shook his head angrily. "'You should be ashamed!' "'I was only admiring how well you handled that key,' Kate said. "'I thought you'd gotten less clumsy, S.Q.' S.Q. brightened. "'Do you think so?' "'S.Q.,' Mr. Kern snapped. "'Be silent and bring the smelting salts from the table.' "'Shall I bring the serum, too?' S.Q. asked, hurrying to the table. "'Absolutely not. As I've told you repeatedly, you are never to touch it. "'The serum's too precious to trust in your awkward paws, S.Q. You should know that.' 
I was just singing about what Kate had said and how I seemed to be... Mr. Curtin rubbed his forehead. She was lying to you, SQ. It was the key she was admiring, not your skill with it. Now wake up, Benedict. Move away and for the last time be silent. SQ obediently passed the smelling salts beneath Mr. Benedict's nose. Mr. Benedict sniffed, startled, and suddenly looked up. His green eyes, normally so clear and bright, were terribly bloodshot and brimmed with red. He seemed exhausted beyond measure, but they flashed with joy when he fell upon the children, only to go to trouble when he perceived their predicament. Ah, Mr. Benedict said ruefully, pushing up his spectacles with his free hand. How good it is to see you, my friends, and how I wish you hadn't come. They've come to save you, Benedict, cried Mr. Curtin. They sneaked into my salamander and raced to your rescue. Aren't they doing a fine job? I think they've done admirably, Mr. Benedict said. Then turning to SQ, he added, SQ, you know I don't mind having you close by, but I imagine my brother would prefer you to stand a bit farther away from his prisoners. I've told you never to call me that, Mr. Curtin snarled as SQ hastily retreated. You are not my brother. A brother would not have ruined years of my work. A brother would not have taken away that which I prize most. My brother? No, Benedict, you are decidedly not my brother. And yet we do look rather alike, Mr. Benedict pointed out. Mr. Curtin pressed his lips so tightly together, the color left them, and his knuckles, too, went white from clenching the arms of his wheelchair. Spinning around so that back was Mr. Benedict, the chair moved noiselessly. He must have triggered its silencing device. Mr. Curtin took several deep breaths. No one could hear him, but his shoulders rose and fell dramatically with each breath. The fact of his kinship to Mr. Benedict was clearly upsetting to him, just as it had once had been, and perhaps still was, to Mr. Benedict. A year had passed since each had discovered a long-lost brother and a formidable enemy at the exact same time, and Mr. Curtin had evidently spent every morning of it cultivating his bitterness. Regaining his composure, he turned back to face Mr. Benedict. His mouth began to move, but no sound came out. With an irritated grimace, he pressed a button on the controller with his hand and started again. "'Very well,' he said. "'I will acknowledge that you are my brother, a brother who ruined my ambitions and is thus the very worst kind of traitor. Are you satisfied?' Mr. Benedict opened his mouth to speak, but Mr. Curtin cut him off. "'That was a rhetorical question, Benedict. I do not care in the least if you are satisfied or not.' He rolled his eyes and moved a little closer in his wheelchair. And now to business. Since you have slept through recent developments, Benedict, allow me to appraise you of the situation. I had hoped these children would not know about the duck's work, but by their own account they do not. Therefore, Mr. Benedict interrupted him. I've told you repeatedly, the Thadra, that if you'd only release number two and me, I would make sure you were informed about the duck's work. That offer still stands. Once my friends and I are safely out of reach, I promise to have the information sent to you. I know what you have offered, Mr. Curtin said irritably. And yet, even if I trusted you, Benedict, the offer wouldn't exactly suit my plans. I am not going to let you go. I am not ever going to let you go. Won't I grow awfully cumbersome, Mr. Benedict said? I'd hate to be a burden. Mr. Curtin sneered. You joke, but the jokes will soon be to an end. No, you will not be cumbersome. I don't intend to let you go. But... I don't intend to keep you around either. I intend to replace you. It was with obvious delight that Mr. Kern explained his carefully laid plans. The months he'd spent watching, waiting, preparing. How he'd ordered the theft of the truth serum. The better, he explained, to extract key passwords and information that would help him pass for Mr. Benedict. 
Under his new identity, Mr. Curtin would regain access to the Whisperer, and with the ability to manipulate the memories and opinions of others. In short order, these officials who opposed the new Mr. Benedict's admissions would find themselves unceremoniously yanked from their posts, with no memory of having opposed him at all. And with the help of his former executives, so well placed in government, Mr. Curtin, known to everyone else as Mr. Benedict, would rise swiftly to a position that unequaled power. In a way, Mr. Curtin explained in a mocking tone, Mr. Benedict had done much of the work for him. He had but to take advantage when the opera arose. My associates are ready to pounce the moment you strayed beyond your protection. But then I learned that you made plans for travel without disclosing the reasons to anyone. This, I thought, was suspicious behavior, and I was determined not to apprehend you until I had learned more. And, oh, what I learned was well worth the wait, don't you think? Ducksworth, the most precious plant imaginable. And you, of all people, unwittingly prepare to lead me right to it. Mr. Karnanka uttered a clipped speech of laughter that sounded like a hiccup. The Thaudra, said Mr. Benedict. Why are you telling me this now? Mr. Curtin ignored him. Speaking directly to the children, he continued. When I caught up with him here, I knew the ducks were close by. Mr. Benedict and his assistants, I refused to call her by that ridiculous code name. Clearly intended to use this cave as a temporary laboratory. They had everything they needed. A comfortable location, shelter from the wind, a microscope, good lighting. To my great annoyance, however, I discovered that I'd arrived before they had gathered any of the plants for study. I could have never guessed their place would be so tortoise-like. Here they were, lucrediously unaware of the Ducksworth's priceless location, or even of its appearance, just sitting on their hands and waiting for some mysterious associate to contact them with the necessary information. Mr. Curtin gave Mr. Benedict a contemptuous glance. Luckily, he went on, after wasting only a few drops of my truth serum, I realized the most efficient way to find this person would be to appeal to the protective instincts of Mr. Benedict's friends. It was a perfect plan, no, a plan beyond perfection. I would receive the information I sought, then return to my stone town in triumph. I would have the Ducksworth and my Whisperer. Can you imagine? The children shuddered. They could imagine only too well. Mr. Curtin's dream was everyone else's nightmare. Of course, Mr. Curtin said. I would have to reveal in private. In public, I would be compelled to grieve for my assistant, that poor nervous woman who would have failed to escape with me. I'm sure you can understand why your friend couldn't return with me, not knowing who I really was. No, I'm afraid she would have met her untimely demise at the hands of that cruel Mr. Curtin. Or else I hadn't decided yet. She would remain his prisoner hidden away somewhere in a far corner of the world, where all the government's top agents would be dispatched to serve in Germain. This, of course, is why my men are tracking her down even as we speak. I may be undecided about her fate, but I certainly can't have her running loose. The Thradra, said Mr. Benedict gravely. It doesn't have to be this way. Mr. Curtin looked at him in askance. Oh, but I choose for it to be this way, and the arrival of the children has simplified matters. You asked a minute ago why I'm telling you all this now. The answer is that I needed to be cautious. I do not care to give you the information you might use against me. You had already proven yourself too untrustworthy for my truth serum to be effective. You always managed to say something technically true, but completely unhelpful. But that was when the serum was administered without, how I shall, if I put it, without additional ingredients. And now those ingredients are in my possession. Mr. Curtin took out his shining silver gloves. The children instinctively recoiled. Grinning at their reaction, he patted the gloves against his knees. I suspect that the children here, you'll be more inclined to tell me what I wish to know. What would you say, Benedict? Shall I put on my kid gloves? Mr. Benedict looked at his brother with an expression of profound concern. 
Vadra, you can't possibly. Do not tell me what I cannot do, Mr. Curtin shouted. He quickly closed his eyes and took a deep breath. After a long moment, he opened his eyes again. You can say what you please, he said in a calmer tone, but if your answers are not helpful to me, the children will pay the price. Mr. Curtin shot forward in his wheelchair, narrowly missing the children and Mr. Benedict, and retrieved a small vial and a dropper from the nearby table. He spun the chair around and rolled over to Mr. Benedict. Let's get started, shall we? Mr. Benedict gazed steadily into his brother's eyes. How can I know that you won't hurt the children anyway? A fair question, said Mr. Curtin, drawing a single drop of the liquid from the vial. Allow me to put your mind at ease. Mr. Curtin lifted the dropper, threw back his head, and let the drop fall into his mouth. Instantly, his eyes bulged as he wagged his head, as if he'd swallowed turpentine. I promise, he said, speaking quickly in a strange voice, that if you tell me what I all I wish to know, I will not hurt these children. I'll use the whisper to remove their memories of this event, and so there will be no threat to my plans and can leave the remainder of their lives in safety. I will not offer you anything better, but that much at least, I promise. The two men stared at each other. Mr. Curtin was a look of defiance. Mr. Benedict with an assessing, contemplative expression. At length, Mr. Benedict started to speak, only to be interrupted by Constance, who shouted, "'He's lying, Mr. Benedict. That wasn't the true serum at all. He switched the vials while you were asleep.' Mr. Benedict started, then looked visibly upset, as if he'd just received terrible news. In a voice so low only the children heard it, he said, "'I knew he was lying, dear girl.' Mr. Curran was staring at Constance in amazement. "'Well, well, well,' he said in an appraising tone. "'Now how could you possibly know I switched the vials?' Constance stared back in dismay. She didn't know how she'd known about the vials. She only knew that she hadn't wanted Mr. Benedict to be fooled, and that her revelation seemed to please Mr. Curtin very much. "'I did switch them, but it was long before you arrived,' Mr. Curtin was saying, mostly to himself. His fingers drummed excitedly on the armrest of his wheelchair. "'And yet you knew. You knew. Oh, my, what a useful little girl you are, Constance. I had no idea.' The Thaudra, Mr. Benedict said quickly, promise to leave her alone. No need for the serum. Just make the promise and I will tell you everything you want to know. Mr. Curtin smiled an oily smile. I'll make no such promises, Benedict. I will, however, promise not to harm any of the children for the time being. But only if you answer at once. That is my offer. Shall I put on my gloves or... That won't be necessary, Mr. Benedict said. Just make the promise. I promise, said Mr. Curtin. He gave Constance a sly look. Am I telling the truth, my dear? Constance gazed at him fearfully, then nodded. Mr. Curtin made a pleased murmur. He turned back to Mr. Benedict. Now tell me quick and no more games. Who is this person you spoke of? And don't you dare ask which person. You know who I mean. The one extremely close to you. The only one who can secure this information for me. That's exactly what you said. Now who is this person? Mr. Benedict looked frankly at his brother. You. Me, said Mr. Curtin, taken aback. His eyes narrowed, and he put his hands over his mouth, breathing into them as they say they were cold. It was evident he was attempting to stay calm. What do you mean, me? How could I possibly secure this information for myself? You could have done so at any time simply by letting us go, which was the offer I made you repeatedly, said Mr. Benedict. Had you released us, I would have revealed the information. Mr. Curtin threw his hands into the air. But you said you didn't know. I said no such thing. Mr. Curtin's wheelchair bucked forward, and with surprisingly agility, he leaped from his seat and landed inches away from Mr. Benedict. He shook his finger at Mr. Benedict's face. "'And what if I threatened to hurt your companion? You wouldn't have revealed it then.' "'I most certainly would have,' said Mr. Benedict, but it would still have been you who secured the information with your threats.' "'So you phrased it that way to prevent further questioning?' roared Mr. Curtin, finally understanding. 
You knew I didn't want to waste any more serum. You knew I wanted to save it. That was my understanding, yes, Mr. Bendick returned his brother's furious look with a calm, indescribable gaze. The children watched hopefully. If Mr. Curtin was angry enough, he might fall asleep, and they could try to make an escape. Maybe. But after only a moment of outrage quivering, Mr. Curtin relaxed. He smiled, nodded, and put his hands behind his back. His wheelchair came up behind him like a well-trained pet. "'Good enough,' he said, taking a seat. "'In the end, your treachery has worked in my favor. "'You must be terribly disappointed in yourself, Benedict. "'Now I shall have my Dexworks and my Whisperer, "'and these children are proving useful as well.' "'He turned his wheelchair and cast a probing glance at the Constance. "'The thaw dress, said Mr. Benedict. "'Shall I show you what I discovered now, or would you prefer to wait?' "'Yes,' said Mr. Curtin, turning eagerly back toward him. "'Show me at once. "'I'll need you to turn off the lights, then.' "'What?' "'The floodlights. Turn them off. There's a control box on the table.' "'I know where the control box is,' said Mr. Curtin, "'and I have left the lights on for a good reason, "'so that nothing you did would go unobserved.' "'Mr. Benedict gave him a patient smile. "'I was aware of this, of course, "'but if you wish to see what I've been hiding from you, "'then off they must go.' "'Mr. Curtin regarded him coldly. "'Before I turn them off, "'do I need to make clear what punishments the children would suffer "'if this attempt is to trick me?' I don't believe such an explanation will be necessary, no. I assure you I intend to do nothing at all while the lights are out. Mr. Curtin backed his wheelchair to the table and picked up the control box. He examined it carefully, then, just to be safe, rolled over and handed the box to SQ, who had been watching the proceedings in dutiful silence and at a dutifully safe distance. Very well, Benedict. Let us hope you haven't needlessly endangered your young friends. SQ flipped the switch. SQ did as he was told, and the cave was thrown into perfect darkness. But the darkness lasted only a moment, for the walls, staglamites, and stachylites soon began to glow with luminescent streaks of green. "'What you're seeing is a form of translucent moss,' said Mr. Benedict. "'It is what makes the rock appear slimy and wet in the light. In the darkness, as you can see, it is iridescent.' For a long time, Mr. Curtin sat in startled silence. Then he laughed, softly at first, then louder and louder, and screechier and screechier, until the walls of the cavern reverberated with the great screeching peals of Mr. Curtin's triumph." Thank mm-hmm. you.